Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including but not limited to crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hey everybody, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. We have a special episode for you today because we are also joined by our colleague, Peter Stern, who is the Head of Sales and Business Development and Partnerships, Americas, for CF Benchmarks. Peter, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Ken. I'm, I'm very excited to, to be on the podcast this week. Wonderful. And um, this is a particularly special one on a personal basis for myself and probably for Gabe as well, because Peter and I pretty much started at the same time at CF Benchmarks about three years ago. And anyone who is slightly aware of the history of the company probably knows how much the company has both changed and of course grown in that time. So it's um, one that we've been trying to put together for a while and we're really, really stoked to have Peter on board. I think I would like to give a really, really short potted history of Peter's career, seven years, I believe, pretty much doing investment management uh, roles. As we said, he's currently the head of uh, sales and business development, uh, focusing on the Americans. He comes to CF Benchmarks uh, previously from Bitwise, the digital asset first asset management firm in the States, which I'm sure is familiar to a lot of you guys. He had also had stints at um, Payden Rigel, a business development at Payden Rigel. Um, and he was also a mutual fund specialist at Eaton Vance, as well as uh, an ETF product specialist at Deutsche Bank. So, you know, he's a seasoned investment professional. So Peter, the thing that really springs to mind that, you know, the first question we need to ask you is what turned your head to crypto? Because really, this sounds like quite a conventional, institutional sort of career path. And then you suddenly jump ship and uh, enter the mad, wild and wonderful world of crypto. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a pretty large change from uh, fixed income to uh, cryptocurrency. That's uh, that's for sure. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was and thanks for the introduction, Ken, it was kind of stemmed from, yeah, I started out in, you know, fixed income, relatively boring, plain vanilla, yeah, at Eaton Vance and Payton Regal, very institutional. Yeah, just not, as you'd say, the, the sexiest uh, side of investments management. But I saw the progression from mutual funds to ETFs was kind of the first transition. And, you know, mainly with uh, with Deutsche Bank, it was the the, the extractors, the, the currency hedged products and saw the, you know, the transition one from mutual funds and separate accounts over to uh, ETFs. So I wanted to get in that space first. So then, you know, I was able to make that transition. And then, yeah, it was probably around, I started following crypto around 2014, I would say. 
And then in 2015, I had a couple of friends ask me, you know, they're in more packaging logistics and they had, they had extra money from bonuses that they were trying to, to find where to allocate it. And they were obviously on, on the Bitcoin hype. I didn't understand crypto that well. I couldn't model it in a portfolio. I couldn't use Port on Bloomberg to, to figure this out. So I honestly, I, I hated it. And I thought this was just a Ponzi scheme. This is garbage. But I said, you know, I, I can't be ignorant. I have to educate myself. So that's where I went down the crypto rabbit hole back then. And, and that's where I, I was looking at Bitwise. And actually, the, the head of uh, passive products at Deutsche Bank had moved on. And then at this point, he was at Bitwise. And he, you know, called me out of the blue and said, you know, do you want to move to San Francisco for a year and essentially start, you know, marketing this to advisors, institutions, you know, in, in a cryptocurrency index wrapper. I thought it was still kind of crazy, but my my wife and my mentor in the industry said, you know, this is the time to get into this space and at least give it a shot. So that's, you know, kind of how I made the transition to crypto. And then back from Deutsche, you know, we worked with MSCI, FTSE, Russell, S&P, the, the large index providers. And I have very close friends and, and ex-colleagues that work at those firms. So I wanted to make the transition into indexing. And that's where this blended everything together, cryptocurrency and indexing. So for me, it was a it was the perfect role. Now you and Gabe, obviously, you're both um, stateside. So I'm gonna let Gabe uh, take it from here because yeah, there's all sorts of ways we can go. But Gabe, uh, you had some initial questions. I know. I just want to make a quick point that Ken, you and Peter here may have worked at CFB, you know, at the same time, have a longer tenure. But it's very possible that Peter and I maybe crossed paths even before then. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in the Deutsche Bank world, so um, we both come from that traditional finance background. And you know what Peter was saying about how he saw this technological kind of transition from the mutual fund vehicles over to the ETFs. You know, something that you know, if you extrapolate this out into the future even further on the crypto side we're going to see i think more tokenization of real world assets and that's going to be kind of a secular trend uh, as you kind of get to implement more of that blockchain technology but no um peter um welcome to our podcast we're really excited to have you we've got a lot of topics to i think cover today and i think you know for our uh listeners we really want maybe want to give them just like a top of the rundown of who are some of these big players, you know, who are some of the, the partnerships that you work with uh, here in the U.S.? Some of our listeners might not have too much of an understanding of CF benchmarks and what we do here. So really be interested to kind of get that take from you. Thanks again, Gabe. And, and again, very happy to be here. You know, as, as Ken alluded to, I've been with CFB for almost three years now. So, you know, primary focus at least in the Americas, has been with large institutions, you know, traditional asset managers, similar to where you and I come from, just our, our, our previous background. So trying to educate them and trying to, you know, provide a service as the best index provider for crypto. And, you know, the large asset managers and banks are the, the first targets that come to mind and they have the, the sheer capacity and, you know, the willingness to to launch the types of products that we're used to seeing, you know, whether it's a mutual fund or an you know a separately managed account or it's an ETF, um, so that's where a lot of my focus is. Um, as well as here, you know, there is the as we spoke, you know, the the bitwise is the grayscales of the world. The more crypto native asset managers um, is is kind of really where I've spent a large majority of of my time at, at CFB, and and it's not just you know within the Americas as in the United States. We have clients such as Evolve ETFs in Canada, as well as QR Asset and, and, and Hashtags, you know, who Hashtags has been on the podcast as well. 
we've seen the Brazilian or the South American markets and the Canadian markets be much more willing to adopt crypto. So that's where, you know, a lot of the initial focus was, and we've seen transitions over to, you know, one of our, our largest clients, BlackRock, and and their willingness to build a digital assets team and really put a lot of effort and time forward to learn the space as well as begin to launch products um, within that. So, you know, it, I also do spend time with more of the asset owner space. You know, we've had some conversations with endowments. We've spoken to some consultants as well. So pretty much the traditional gambit of of the asset management, investment management world over here. I think it's super interesting because, you know, from your perspective, you're dealing with, I would say, the largest, you know, well-known asset manager in the world. You cover, like you were saying, America is the, the entire region. So you have North and South America. And you're seeing uh, a lot of smaller asset managers who, who we partner with who are in these regulatory regimes that are a little bit more friendly towards digital assets. And so you're kind of seeing a little bit of, you know, the big versus small, hawkish versus dovish regulatory regimes in all these different regions. It's just really, I think, interesting to get your perspective and hear kind of like what what are some of the recent, you know, discussions or dialogues that you're having with prospects or clients? Again, I think it's Canada and, and South America. I'm actually headed to Peru next week for for a conference. They kind of came pretty hot out of the gates, you know, Canada specifically with Bitcoin and Ether, and then, you know, have some some multi-asset portfolios. But Brazil specifically, similar. They came out with Bitcoin Ether, but quickly adapted the DeFi multi-asset portfolios, you know, smart contract multi-asset portfolios, you know, kind of what we really wish we had over here in the States. But still in the Americas, the primary focus has been Bitcoin and Ether. It's because, as you alluded to, the smaller organizations here can be a bit more nimble and there's not as many people to convince when when launching a product or kind of integrating digital assets, you know, into their infrastructure where the larger firms, it just takes a lot longer. They have a lot more people to appease um, in terms of, you know, even getting to Bitcoin and Ether to have that conversation around how do you integrate that into a product or just understanding it or building a digital assets team, where also, though, as you said, Gabe, you know, the most recent talks are a lot of people wanting to tokenize, you know, already existing assets, um, real world assets. And I think it's it's partly because a lot of them don't want to fully dip their toes in and say that they're really dealing with digital assets from like an actual, you know, down to the coin perspective. They don't want to necessarily deal with the reputational risk, which, you know, of full blown, we're diving into this fully, where their tokenization of real world assets is a little bit easier from a headline risk perspective. So that's, that's kind of what we've seen. We've seen certain large firms that have really dove down the rabbit hole and some that are still, you know, cautiously optimistic around the space. Yeah, we've touched on this already because um, we're, all, we're all fully aware here um, that there is an elephant in the room. And uh, basically, this is one question which a lot of people really want to know about. We are CF Benchmarks um, and we, or rather you, Peter, managed to land only the biggest asset manager in the world, BlackRock, of course with a trust and investment vehicle for Bitcoin. You know, in a world where Gary Gensler is like, um, you know, a concrete block trying to prevent progress. Yeah. Well, maybe he's got his good reasons, yeah. you know, but it's still there. Um, you know, this this is like a sort of crack in the 
in the matrix, right? Uh, or of reality. <laughs> if Bitcoin really is this bad, really is this um, corrosive, then why is the largest asset manager in the world jumping in? Obviously, because it's got you know the backing of uh, service providers like CF Benchmarks. They're using the CF Bitcoin New York TWAP, a, a sort of bespoke index. I had to look that up because it's got a long name. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, Peter, the process of reeling in a BlackRock I think will be really instructive for a lot of people who are listening. How did that um, all come about? I think with with them, and again, you see all the negative headlines about crypto constantly, or you know, bad press, or people, you know, all these different blogs, YouTube, anything social media wise. But a lot of it that you don't see is these large asset managers such as BlackRock. They've been researching the topic for quite a while now, and they have internal teams that, you know, and and our key, you know. Uh, points of contact there, they've been there for a while and they've been looking at the space and they've been onboarding the correct vendors. They've been, you know, really doing the due diligence and taking their time to actually seamlessly and, you know, launch the product that they launched with us, the Bitcoin Trust, in a very regulated, well done, seamless, like took their time, did their due diligence on each, you know, each third party that they're using. To launch the product. And again, it's a very institutional grade product. You know, it's a trust in the sense it's similar to the other trusts that have been launched out there, but it has, you know, very institutional minimums and it's geared toward, you know, them launching the first, their first spot product to test the waters with institutions and and go that route. But it wasn't something that was just launched overnight. Peter, when we look at the uh the US landscape of crypto asset managers, you know, I think we'd all agree that BlackRock entering that space, despite it being a private trust, frankly, it's a kind of a big deal because, you know, you're, you basically have the largest asset manager, you know, this is the big, the big one that if it puts a stamp of approval on, you know, some sort of product tied to Bitcoin, in this case, a direct top product that's uh, investing in a spot, uh, Bitcoin, it seems like this is the type of circumstances that can get kind of the dominoes to start falling. And maybe the SEC historically has been kind of looking at these applications from these smaller asset managers trying to get spot products approved. And they're just not confident in the resources that they have, the depth that they have of their teams. And when you get someone like BlackRock to kind of step forward to start to, to dip their toe in, do you think that this is kind of consequential for kind of the next phase in the SEC reconsidering maybe the uh, their approach with spot ETFs here in, in the US? Well, that's the hope. Um, and and I would say that, again, it's the larger, the state streets, the Black Rocks, the vanguards, the, the, the very large asset managers who, if you think about when Barclays Global turned over into iShares I don't know, 20 years ago at, at this point or a little bit longer, people thought that they were crazy for trying to capitalize on this big ETF opportunity because people only bought mutual funds. They bought mutual funds and stocks and they bought, you know, different, you know, now outdated um, investment vehicles and going into someone's office, a financial advisor, or, you know, a, in Chicago here, like, let's say where I'm living, you know, you, if you were talking about ETFs, you know, passive fund at that time, 20 some years ago, they would not have taken your meeting or thought you were crazy. And now you look at the iShares business, it's a multi-trillion dollar business. So they were able to, you know, really capitalize on this change and shift 
from feed compression and just more transparent, easy, easier vehicles to invest in. And that's where we've seen like when they decided to, and you know, Larry Fink has had very positive stuff to say about blockchain, digital assets, crypto, everything over the past couple of years. And seeing them go full on with launching, even though it's a very, again, institutional product, seeing someone with that caliber step into the marketplace with a great understanding of it, I think is a drastic shift and gives a lot more people confidence. You know, if if someone is willing as as a BlackRock is willing to, you know, put their reputation on the line and dive into digital assets, it's very good for the traditional asset management world, traditional financial services and the digital asset world to see someone who's willing to adopt this technology. I mean, it's uh, persuasive for the industry, it's persuasive for the managers and and other types of um product providers, is it persuasive for the regulator? And maybe the most important regulator, the SEC, do you think? How, how do you think the SEC regarded um, that, that news and, and, and was it in any way an influence? I don't know what Peter was just saying. I just want to jump in real quick because I think he hit something kind of uh, very important when he was talking about the fee compression and what the ETF movement brought into the investment world for consumers, for investors, retail investors. And when you look at the current environment and landscape in the US, on one side, you have this big push to go to more fee-based fiduciary type advisors. And on this side in the crypto, you don't really have too many vehicles that are, I think, efficient from a cost perspective that advisors could you know, utilize for their existing uh, book of, of, of clients. And so when you're a regulator, and you're trying to, you know, protect end consumers and investors, I see these two forces kind of coming together head on because kind of the existing regime with the the current framework is is frankly kind of limiting, I think, um, some of these better options or alternatives for the retail client to get exposure, you know, through their traditional um, advisor distribution channels. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to get Peter's take and you know, hear more of his thoughts on this because I think it's pretty uh, it's pretty apparent the way these two forces are going to be colliding here soon. Yeah, and, and that's a great question. And obviously, with you know a majority of the CFB team and, and Ken as well over in in the UK, the UK and most of the European markets are very different in the sense you know from the the US markets where the financial advisory space controls the wealth here. It's it's whether you're in a traditional you know as they call them wirehouse representatives. So the Morgan Stanleys, the UBSs, Merrill Lynch's of the world, um, versus as Gabe was alluding to, a, a registered investment advisor, a family office, they're really controlling, you know, a lot of them are pushing these types of products that the large asset managers are launching because of the amount of wealth that can pour into these products from from a day one. And with the current existing marketplace out there, there's, you know, as the trusts, there's separate accounts, there's, you know, the futures-based ETFs, there's the ability to have kind of a bolt-on where you can go direct through an exchange like Kraken. You know, there's a handful of different types of vehicles with not a, you know, a perfect vehicle by any means. And a lot of them are a bit more clunky. Um, they do have higher fees. You know, if you think about some of the the large ETFs out there for the plain vanilla equities that are five basis points or 10 basis points, where these crypto trust products, a lot of them are 250 basis points. So it's a massive flip over to even higher than, you know, a lot of the mutual funds are charging. And 
I think from a regulator's perspective, there's pretty much everyone's tried to find a way to go around the regulator and, you know, because ETFs are not allowed and getting an ETF, you know, opens the doors, especially from a retail perspective for people to finally cleanly access this type of digital asset landscape, you know, primarily just Bitcoin would, would be the first one, but it at least allows for a cleaner way. And a lot of people, you know, who are, you know, registered investment advisors or fiduciaries, they, who understand digital assets, for them, the ETF is not the cleanest way. For them, it's the easiest way and the cheapest, most effective way is to use a Kraken, is to integrate with Kraken, to buy it through their, you know, to hold their 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 wallets. But for the majority, for the 98% of the other advisors out there, that's so clunky. And for, for most of them, like the large banks, you know, the Merrill Lynch's Morgan Stanley's, they cannot, you know, their compliance will never allow them to do that. So they need a product in an ETF wrapper to be able to access for their clients, as well as, you know, like my parents' generation, um, you know, whether it be through their advisor or just if they have their own investment account that they want to run, they could at least access, you know, that through a Charles Schwab or a Fidelity to be able to to buy that. So they're, you know, that's why I think that this, you know, approval of an ETF just opens, you know, the amount of vehicles that people can access to where you really can pick and choose versus being forced to use something that may be a bit more clunky. So we talked about some of the resistance in terms of the exact avenue that you take um, to actually get exposure. But, you know, more, more, more fundamentally, you know, you're obviously going to be a lot more familiar with the exact nature or quantum of resistance that you're seeing from asset managers, investment advisors, and so on and so forth, to be involved in cryptocurrencies at all, you know. So, you know, what are the sort of like the really top level points or contentions that you're hearing still in 2023 from people as to why they don't want to offer a crypto product or they're reluctant to? I think most of them, especially it's, you know, from top down, the people at the top are not convinced that it's worth the efforts or worth because you know you look at a blackrock who already had a digital assets team develop a lot of these asset managers one would have to hire a lot more people that are very crypto savvy but also traditional you know come from traditional uh, financial services or they have to move people over from different departments and say now your focus is digital assets and a lot of them are very cautiously optimistic I think a lot of them want to see, you know, as much as BlackRock was, you know, that was great news to the whole asset management, traditional asset management world. They want to see more. They want to see others really dive in or would love to see that, you know, exchange traded products are going to get approved on exchanges in the United States. And even for the firms that have developed digital assets teams, they would love to launch DeFi multi-asset portfolios. Like, you know, they'd like to take you know, the the CF DAX and build stuff off of that and use the taxonomy to because they see the value of that compared to, you know, as as compared to GIX and being able to build out a whole suite. But the people at the top are just saying, no, it's not time. You know, we don't want to race, you know, waste resources. And a lot with, you know, I deal with a lot of lawyers and legal teams was, is it worth the effort to go through all this stuff from a compliance perspective? to then just be shut down. Reputational risk as well, we talked about in our little, I mean, that's still, people kind of overlook that. I certainly overlook it. 
but you start talking about this stuff in some venues, in some boardrooms. Is it really still that much of a sort of neutron bomb on your career if you start mentioning crypto or you're indicating your interest in sort of bringing that kind of uh, access? I think it, it it's similar to, you know, when when Gabe and I worked at Deutsche Bank and, you know, even though we were not affiliated with a lot of the stuff that was on the, the negative headlines, you get clients asking, you get, you know, your end clients end up asking, hey, what's going on with that? And if you can stay out of the press, it's a good thing. You don't want to like enter a space and then immediately get questions because the first time that you've had bad press is for five years has to do with something that people say is, you know, still affiliated with criminal activity. And that's where I think is still a very big issue for a lot of these large firms, because if everything's going well, you know, what is the reward for entering the space, which obviously we disagree with that, but it's, that's because, you know, we spend all of our days where realistically, most of these teams, like if they don't have a digital assets team, you know, they're spending a couple hours a week. It's nothing like they still have to worry about alternatives, fixed income, traditional equities, because that's 99% of their business. Yeah. And what's that really uh, famous saying? It's better to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of this, uh, yeah, this mantra that I think applies well in this in this instance. But, uh, you know, to be frank, I think if you look at what happened in 2022, we had all these shocks in the, in the industry, all these- Wasn't a great advert. All these headlines, right? And I think that really the- if we could single one out, it would would have been the collapse of FTX and Alameda, which left such a bad taste in everyone's mouths, and I think got so many uh, or got the attention of the political cohort here in the U.S. to kind of cause action. That that was really, I think, the uh, a key moment to be a lot more hawkish towards crypto here in, in this country. And Peter, it's it's really good to get your perspective on these things because. You can really go into the weeds and and discuss some of these topics that I would say a lot of people aren't really aware of. Like, what are some of these into the weed type issues that you know when you're an asset manager and you're considering the space? Uh, is there some sort of uh, you know important agreements that you have to have? What would be something that would kind of hinder them as far as uh, entering the crypto space for them? A lot of it, like the especially very large organizations are not as nimble as the CF benchmarks is, for instance. So, you know, a lot of it is is connectivity to their systems to be able to, you know, for us, we're, you know, we're using APIs, SFTP files, you know, we're integrated with Bloomberg, Refinitiv, um, you know, a handful of providers of, of that sort, but not everyone is has a Bloomberg terminal at these large asset managers or not everyone can digest the data in the same format. So a lot of it is seamless integration because they don't want to have to reinvent the wheel in terms of how they're digesting data from traditional providers, as well as a lot of it with, you know, stuff like, you know, fortunately for us, the FTX collapse obviously tremendously affected the landscape, but, you know, wasn't part of, you know, as an example, wasn't part of our constituent exchange. So, you know, they were never going to be in our calculation for our indices. We benefited in a way from them collapsing just in the sense that, you know, it showed our processes were so well established and that's what providers look at. You know, they would have been much more concerned if FTX was in there because then it's just more explanation around that to their end clients 
their legal, their compliance, their leadership, as well as integrating with certain, like, you know, when trying to get products approved, um, like with the SEC, you know, when I was at Bitwise, a lot of it was around volume and market manipulation. And now it's, you know, a lot of it has shifted more, in my opinion, to talking about, as, as you alluded to, Gabe, information sharing, as you would with a traditional equity exchange. If you were to launch an ETF, you know, they have agreements between the exchanges and the, the you know, regulatory body and the asset manager to be able to to share information if there is that type of, you know, illegal activity or stuff that could be market manipulation, which, you know, hasn't really existed in terms of that landscape. Um, so there's a bunch of those behind the scene factors that kind of everything has to line up for these firms to, you know, in, in the United States regulatory regime, that's kind of where a lot of the, everything has to align correctly for this stuff to potentially work. I, I've always heard the market manipulation uh, hurdle. And I think you're the first one to kind of share this other one, which is the information sharing for me to kind of get to know that one. But that's just a very interesting, I guess, hurdle that we have to clear now. What I was thinking is, um, you know, to bring it all together, because we've, we've really touched on the sort of main points, the ideal model that in theory, because we don't know, you know, we're basically um, in the dark here, guesswork. But in theory, we're, we've we've sort of arrived at the ideal structure of a spot Bitcoin product, listed spot Bitcoin product that the SEC could potentially approve. It needs to have, oh, it's Bitcoin. It could be any crypto asset, but you know, let's start with Bitcoin. Probably most likely to see that first. It needs to have some sort of information sharing sharing agreement. Um, structure within it. It needs to potentially be um, offered by a large firm uh, to offer the buffer in terms of resource, manpower, you know, legal to enable it to sort of withstand all sorts of shocks that can come, you know, unpredictably from the market. And um, basically, of course, it needs to have um, the most watertight in terms of integrity service providers backing it including CF, companies like CF Benchmarks, um, in order to actually pass that muster. Now, really, as I say, we are getting to this stage just by a process of deduction and basically extrapolation. There is no rule book. That's the infamous uh, contention that everybody has, right? But um, is that what it would look like? Is that what a an approved, listed US spot Bitcoin uh, ETF would look like in your view? I mean, I think the that you hit the nail on the head was that's all the stars, those stars need to align for the SEC to feel comfortable. And I think because of the, the more esoteric products from an alternatives perspective, let's say that the large institutions have launched in the past and now maybe in a mutual fund or an ETF wrapper, you know, they've seen those large institutions are not necessarily just crypto native firms. So I think a lot of them have experience, you know, getting these more derivative based or again, alternative type products um, in an ETF wrapper. And they have the infrastructure and the the headcount to be able to facilitate more esoteric type products. And, you know, having the experience, I think goes a, you know, goes a long way with the regulatory bodies and they just want to see it done well, because it, it like in the end, it's the general public here in the United States and the institutions who are the ones that are buying and absorbing these products. And 
with the traditional asset managers being able to have, again, like with the general public, because a lot of them, as Gabe, you know, alluded to before, the you know, having a fiduciary responsibility as an investment professional, regardless of whether you're an RIA or an independent advisor or a big wirehouse bank advisor, or, you know, you're an institution or an, you know, an outsourced, you know, an outsourced CIO consultant, you have to do your due diligence and do what's best for your clients. And that's, you know, laws that have been more implemented recently because of past problems within, you know, the investment world here in the United States was the end client is the most important client because they're the ones that are really taking in these products, regardless whether they're doing it themselves or having someone do it for them. And with crypto being such a volatile asset and a much newer asset, on you know the other side of the spectrum, there's lawyers knocking around that are waiting for this type of opportunity to sue someone for making a poor investment decision based on an asset class where they didn't understand the volatility and the risk. But we're there to help. You know that's our job. You know when you're picking an index provider in such a volatile space, all the processes and stuff that we have in place allows us to stand up to that scrutiny, where. If there is a problem where the SEC or any other regulatory body has a problem or there's issues that bring up, we truly feel that we can stand up to all of that scrutiny because of what we have in place and our you know, tenure in the space that allows us for hopefully what we would see, you know, a product eventually get launched because we're part of that ecosystem within the large asset management firm that allows them to feel comfortable with going through this. Well, it just seems like a no-brainer really that there is a better vehicle, right? There's a better way in the current landscape to provide in clients, you know, exposure to uh, this asset class, which is just growing in popularity. So very well said, Peter. And uh, that was a great summary, Ken, by the way. You know, if there's any regulators listing, you, you've drilled it down to a nice bullet point list. Ken has set the standard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the point is that, you know, what the, the thing that really always makes me second guess myself with that particular aspect I just find it really weird that this is the process that we actually have to go through to actually get to the end goal of a listed Bitcoin product. Let's talk about a listed product in the digital asset space in the States um, where there's clearly demand, where there's clearly a public interest, where there's clearly a sort of a public safety issue, which is what the SEC is there for in terms of you know consumer standards. The job of the regulator and sort of other agencies of that nature is to bring about that change to allow that future to occur in the most safest way possible. I don't think it's really the job of the regulator to basically shut it down. So, you know, and then not to provide any guidance, right? So, so although I've laid it out, I could be entirely wrong because we don't know. There is no playbook, right? So, yeah, I mean, is this generally how things work in the States uh, historically? I mean, digital assets has definitely thrown a curveball at people because I think it's it's trying to, for one, decide if all of these other coins tokens are securities. Um, and that's where I think here it's very unsure. So the focus is heavily on Bitcoin and Ether. That's where people don't want to dive past that because as we've seen, a lot of people have been fined over here for promoting projects that are technically securities and you know, getting fined millions of dollars is you know, nothing that anyone wants to happen to them. So they we've seen the focus on those two with the regulatory bodies, you know, really 
overseeing this like Hawks, specifically crypto assets, was yeah, you just have to be very cautious, but it's new for them as well. So they're trying to understand this. And and just as the rest of the traditional financial services world spends minimal time on crypto, so do they, where we spend all of our day talking about digital assets, where for them, it's a widely publicized topic, but it's not necessarily top of mind for them. We're on the subject of regulation very broadly, and maybe we can sort of like stretch that to the law because we have a number of things happening in this space right now, which are really important. Um, I, I want to ask your opinion on this, Peter, because I think you've got a you're going to have an amazing perspective. Um, so clearly, we do have. I believe the manager of the still the still the largest crypto fund, in, uh, you know, that's listed in the not it's not well, it is listed in the sense that you know what I'm talking about, Grayscale scale Bitcoin Trust, you know, at loggerheads legally, actually in court with the SEC. The issue is. Um, whether the SEC's decision to reject Grayscale's application to convert Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into an ETF was flawed or not. And, you know, the reasoning, you know, the basics of the reasoning is that we now have futures-based ETFs that are linked to Bitcoin. The most obvious one is uh, the ProShares uh, Bitcoin ETF uh, Bitto. It basically is a CME Bitcoin futures-based ETF. And so therefore, the contention is that because the price tracks Bitcoin, you know, the price of the futures tracks Bitcoin very, very closely. There's sort of like, there's a vanishingly thin difference between the price of Bitcoin futures and the price of Bitcoin. I mean, that can change, but in principle, it is, um, you know, it is there. And also the SEC has approved futures-based crypto ETFs uh, under the 1933 Act, a crucial bit of minutiae. So, you know, a higher level of, a higher, more onerous level of uh, um, scrutiny and uh, oversight is implied. Having done that, how then can they argue that a spot-based Bitcoin ETF uh, should not be approved? And that's essentially Grayscale's um, beef with the SEC. Do you think it holds water? It's a very tough question. Uh, and, <laughs> and again, <laughs> despite both my parents being attorneys, I am not an attorney, but... Uh, Kudos to Grayscale. I mean, it's, yes, the longest running GBTC is probably the longest running digital assets product. I think at a certain point, it peaked at, you know, $60 billion or something. That was, I mean, that's a very large fund. And I think that there's a bunch of different angles you could go from it. And, it, and it, you know, when I was at Bitwise, our, you know, top competitor in the space was Grayscale. And we launched, you know, similar type trust products. And that, from an SEC's perspective at that time, it was really, they hammered home market manipulation, you know, fake volume was a big issue with a lot of the exchanges. And I just don't think that the market was mature enough at that time, you know, five years ago for an ETF product. I think it was just not ready. You know, there there were a lot of bad actors as we've seen, you know, just months ago, there still is a lot of bad actors in the space. I think a lot of them have been cleaned up. Um, I think that they continue to be cleaned up. Uh, but I think for one, there still is obviously the debate whether the SEC or the CFTC should be regulating digital assets because they're technically commodities. Uh, and the CFTC already regulates the futures market for digital assets. But I think that a lot of it was justified, but a lot of it, there's gray areas. And I think that the market's matured enough and Grayscale has been making very good arguments in court to justify why the general public needs this type of vehicle. I think as we talked about before, when there's we were talking about 
the different investment landscape and, and types of products that exist, those types of products are by no mean a perfect product. And I think that a lot of it when initially, which, you know, you can point fingers at whoever you want, but, you know, the conversion to what is in the OTCQX, I believe that the marketplace is for the over-the-counter products, which technically trade as pink sheet products. It's, you can, you know, do the conversion, you know, they're trying to convert the trust to an exchange traded product where you can convert the trust currently to this OTCQX market where that's where a lot of them trade as, you know, at a premium or a discount. And I think that there was a large uproar in the bear market in Bitcoin, especially with when you see the price dispersion between the trust product at net asset value versus what's trading in the open marketplace. Again, you can point fingers at whoever you want for this, but you know when it trades on a lot of brokerage platforms, those types of product, not just Grayscales, but the other ones as well, they appear as an equity product or an ETF product because there really is no widget or window for an OTCQX, which millions of people thought that they were buying an ETF product that would trade at NAV. And that just wasn't true because these products haven't been high demand in the United States marketplace for years. You know, that's where a lot of penny stocks trade. So I think that uh, there was a large uproar from the, you know, when I first started Bitwise or a lot of the advisory market that, you know, felt that they had been screwed on this because frankly, they didn't understand the product. They thought that they were just buying an, an ETF. And I think that I'm sure the SEC is a bit frustrated that they've been very vocal that they're not allowing a spot product. So people have launched vehicles to circumvent them so that, you know, there is the, you know, boilerplate legal language from a reg D product that's more for accredited investors, or, you know, even that they have reg A type products for, you know, even higher net worth individuals. Um, but then when those get converted and it's, you know, they've been dealing with a lot of people trying to get past them for this. So, but I think that Grayscale's arguments now are very sound and, it seems that you know the, the the judges, you know, in a ways agree with that. But then you bring in the issue of you know the new custody laws as another potential roadblock that they can implement. And I think you can argue on both sides. It's it's very tough to pick a side. But on like a different note, I feel that we obviously feel and and as you and you know our our, our CEO Sweet Chung worked on the Bitcoin uh, analysis, you know the the BRR analysis paper three years ago. So now we have, you know, the new updated version. If I was reading that, I would say that the market is more than ready for a spot ETF product. I just think that as you alluded to those steps, those have to be hit. And there is other stuff that allows you to go above and beyond, which I think some people behind the scenes are doing at the moment. I think that the market is ready for it. It just depends on what is going to check all these boxes for the SEC to finally, you know, get this out in, in the marketplace. To be continued then, right? This is uh, <laughs> the topic here is to kind of be following the progression of this. And certainly the grayscale versus SEC, you know, case is, has been, you know, really eye-opening, I think, for a lot of folks and surprising in some ways. Like Peter was saying, it's we have seen some constructive things kind of come out of that that seem to be reported on that. But, you know, to me, if... You know, Peter, you really kind of dissected it from all these different angles, but 
you know, it, it kind of keep arriving to the inevitable, what's best for the end client, what's best for the investor. And certainly, you know, where we're at right now, just, it doesn't seem like it's, you know, an acceptable place to be for retail investors or for anyone really uh, to kind of try and gain exposure to it. So TBD, we'll have to just wait and see, but it's been a, an absolute pleasure. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, having you, I think on the podcast, Peter. We have come to a sort of natural uh, point where we could wrap up. We've been talking for a while. We could probably yeah. talk for a while longer. But um, just broadly speaking, uh, what are you working on right now that you can tell us about, obviously, um, that's going to come to fruition uh, in the near term that's going to be of interest to listeners and watchers? A lot of it and and my time is is spent, you know, I I wish I could spend more on, you know, DeFi and more, you know, stuff past Ether and Bitcoin, but you know, it's primarily spent with institutions trying to all get them comfortable at some point down the road with, depending on what, you know, it, it doesn't have to be an ETF wrapper. It could be a mutual fund. It could be a separately managed account. It could be an on-chain product. It could be something that is, you know, even more esoteric than some of the jurisdictions that allow for that. But primarily, and I think a lot of it, which is big for the industry, um, is selling more education. It still is hammering home education. And a lot of the stuff that we're doing is beyond what any other providers are doing. And probably for most is too far down the rabbit hole in some ways. We're building the same content and, you know, mostly attributed to to you two guys, like, you know, the attribution reports, a lot of the analysis papers, um, a lot of the podcast information is stuff that when people that are skeptics finally do step in three to five years down the road, we have everything that a traditional index provider has. So it's more building relationships for when people do hop on board that we have the full suite of information to help educate the team, no matter where they are in the journey. So it's more of trying to introduce myself and my, my colleague and counterpart, Charlie, to be able to have these conversations over the course of, you know, could be five years, but really spending, you know, hand-to-hand combat with these large institutions and the consultant space and, um, you know, asset owner world to really be their trusted resource as as an index provider in crypto assets. So that's, you know, that's really where I spend the majority of my time and and that's fun. You know, educating people about the space is is truly fun as a, you know, business development person. You know, being able to educate people on a space that changes every day is is what's really exciting about the job. Beautiful. Is there anything we haven't uh, touched on that you wanted to mention at all um, that we can sort of uh, do now at all, Peter? I mean, I would say it, and I would harp on again just that you know, and again, Ken, as we've seen the progress from when we started, even just what the website looks like compared to what it is now is, uh, it, it was, it's, you know, adding someone like Gabe, you know, our, our whole team's expanding constantly, you know, people that do watch this, it's please use this as a resource. I think that we really do have the educational tools and, you know, with Claire on, on digital presentation as well and, and design, our stuff looks a lot prettier now. Like we have a lot of presentations, we have resources, we have the data, you know, everything is transparent. We have truly everything now. And as we keep adding to it for people to educate themselves in digital assets, depending on where you are, whether you're on the ground floor or whether you're on the hundredth floor, we have stuff that that caters to everyone. So, you know, I don't want people to forget that education in the space is the most important thing. So please, you know, please use all of us as a resource as as you dive in, into that journey. Yeah. When you've uh, educated yourself to a little degree and you 
ready to take that final step, give you or, or Charlie, Charlie Joy, if you're <laughs> counterpart in Europe, a call, right? Yeah, please, please do. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yes, um, that's just about it. It's been a uh, really scintillating and I hope insightful and informative conversation, the type of information and conversation that you're unlikely to be able to get anywhere else because we do have another unique guest in Peter uh, among us now. We are so grateful that you've joined us today, Peter. Um, and we do hope you'll come back again to give us a little bit more insight, maybe in six months, maybe a year. Who knows what will have happened by then, right? So thanks a lot uh, again to you, Gabe, and uh, again, Peter, and you guys who've been listening and watching. We'll join you again for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. See ya.